As we come to this section in Galatians, we might be tempted to think, what does this have to do with the gospel and my everyday life? Well, I assure you that it does have something to do with the gospel in our everyday lives. In fact, you know, I think deep down what Paul is getting at here is answering one of the most fundamental questions that we as Christians could ask, or even that a non-Christian could ask. That is, we might ask questions like, how should I treat my spouse? What do, we spend my, what do I spend my money on? What do we spend our money on? Is it okay for me to cut corners in my job? How should I be as a boss to my employee? How should I be as an, an employee to my boss? And see, for Christians, this question stems from really the central issue is, what is my relationship as a Christian with God's law? What is it that God expects of me? How am I to live out my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of God's word and God's commandments? But regardless of a person's relationship with God, even if a person doesn't have a relationship with God, these are reasonable questions that any person might ask. How do I treat my spouse? What do we spend our money on? What corners is it okay for me to cut? Should I cheat on my taxes or not? Will anybody know if I do this, right? Uh, These questions are, are questions really that are reasonable that anybody might ask. But instead, the person maybe who's not a believer would say, well, what, what's the moral code by which I must live my life? You know, that's kind of the fundamental question, isn't it? And the answer to these questions really begs the recognition of a moral and ethical compass that each of us have. Now, it may not work very good for some, and for others it might be super precise, right? But, but each of us has this moral and ethical compass, So to think morally and to think ethically is to think in the realm of our behavior, to think in the realm of our fundamental beliefs. And so when dealing with the question of right and wrong, of right moral living and and right ethical living, Paul is saying the Christian worldview, it's the Christian worldview that offers the most compelling and reasonable answers to the difficult questions of life. Ultimately, that's what Paul is saying and what he claims. And this is where the conversation ends up for him. You've you've got a group of religionists in Galatia here entering the churches of that region. And as they're entering the church, they're saying things like, well, if you're really going to be a Christian, you've got to live this way. You can't eat this food. You've got to eat this food. You can't do that. You've got to do this. You've, You've got to be circumcised because if you don't, you really aren't in a right relationship with God. And so they're they're casting doubt on the faith of the people in Galatia, of the churches. They're saying, you've got to do these works to be saved. And so last week, we saw how Paul continued countering that false teaching. And to prove his point, he drew on the the, the rich history of Old Testament Judaism, and he used the premier patriarch of faith, Abraham from the Old Testament. And he used Abraham to make his point. And so he jumped straight from God's covenant promise with Abraham to Christ's finished work on the cross. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, So then, Paul says, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be anyone or everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And then he goes on in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 3 to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and Christ actually became a curse for us, so that in Christ... 
the blessing of Abraham might come to all or might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so kind of from the 30,000 foot view, Paul argued that we're justified by faith, not by our performance of the law. We're justified by our faith as a result of God's promise, not because of our performance of the law. In fact, he said the law actually imposes a curse on everyone who doesn't obey it perfectly. Now, categorically, that means all humanity. Every one of us are under the curse of that law. Every person in this world has been under the curse of that law, so to speak. So, Romans 3.10, Paul continues to affirm this in the New Testament. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But if you look back into Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet, even the writings in the Psalms, we see this understanding throughout Scripture. It's a common thread throughout Scripture that we are unrighteous people. We've said that on a couple of occasions this morning, so not to be defeatist, but to understand what it means to be justified by faith, we, we also have to understand why we need to be justified by faith. And so then Paul argued that Christ actually became the curse for us, and he redeemed us who by faith believe upon Christ. And so he's saying now, everyone who is declared righteous before God, that means to be justified, to be declared righteous before God, everyone, man, woman, boy, girl, Everyone who is going to be declared righteous before God is done so because of faith in God's promise, because of faith in Jesus Christ. So everyone who will be declared righteous before God is done so because of faith in Christ, not because of performance, not because of the way we live, not because of the way that we carry out the law, but because of faith in Jesus. So all who who believe upon Jesus... They're justified before God. They're they're counted righteous, what Pastor West spoke about earlier, counted righteous before God because of what Jesus Christ has done, the work work that he has accomplished on the cross. So to, to be in Christ then, to be in Christ, the true seed of Abraham, is to join a new family, to become a new creation. We become children and heirs of God's promise through faith by being yoked together with Jesus Christ, since he is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. We become part of God's family when we are yoked together with Jesus Christ because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And that's what Paul is laying out for us today. And it is significant for each of us to understand that this morning. So this means we're unified in Christ through the promised Holy Spirit and that we are, in fact, born again. Belonging to Christ makes us new creations. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. So we're one people of one fellowship in the kingdom of God. And so this really is good news. It's good news because in spite of my sin, right? We said we all sin. In spite of my sin, in spite of your sin, in spite of my erring, in spite of your erring, we've, we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, meaning we are saved by grace, not according to the things that we've done, the things that we continue to do, good or bad, right? The things that we haven't done, the things that we don't do. We're not saved by any of that. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul's going at. 
Faith in Jesus frees us from attempting to earn God's favor. Faith in Jesus frees us from attempting to earn God's favor. All right, so let's read together in 15, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it's no, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if if a law had been given that could, could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, but Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Well, in order to more clearly understand Paul's argument, we turn first to his illustration in verses 15 through 18. And in his illustration in verses 15 through 18, he's dissecting the drama of redemption for us. Notice in verse 15, he says, brothers, he he calls them the the church of Galatia. He calls them, uh, he addresses them as, as part of the family. He's speaking to the Galatian Christians, the family of God. And his argument is, is once a covenant has been struck, struck, it cannot be annulled. And if this is the case for man-made covenants, how much more for the divine covenant is what Paul is arguing? Now, the covenant that he's referring to is God's covenant with Abraham. And so if you want to make a note of Genesis 15, 7 through 17, you can go back and later read uh, read look at this covenant that God made with Abraham, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, 7 through 17. So God cuts, as he would say in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, God cuts a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham was then called Abram. His name would be changed to Abraham later. But in the Old Testament, a covenant was cut between two parties. And it involved a very graphic scene. This is the way the Old Testament covenant worked. And in verse 8, God told Abraham, verse 8 of of Genesis 15, God told Abraham to go and get a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And so Abraham goes and gets them. He knows exactly what to do. He cuts them in half, and then he, he arranges the halves on each side of one another with space in between. This is how covenants in the Old Testament would be signed. The people who are participating in the covenant, they would walk through the middle of the covenant 
or through, through the middle of the, the halves of animals, and this would be like signing the covenant. And in the midst of doing it, they're saying, if I void this covenant, may this happen to me, and may I be cut off. May my death be, in, be like this. And so I'll deserve to die just like these animals. The, the incredible thing, though, about the covenant in Genesis 15 that God makes with Abram is that God is the only one who passes through the halves of the animals, in the, and he passes through in the form of a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And the significance then of the covenant ceremony that God has there with Abram is that he's taken all the initiative. He, he has the obligation then to fulfill the covenant, and it in no way relies upon Abram or Abraham. It, it is completely upon God. The obligation is now upon him, and this is an unconditional covenant. Now, unconditional covenant is different than a conditional covenant, right? The conditional covenant is what we see through Moses in Deuteronomy. We see the uh, Deuteronomy, I think, 28, where we see the, uh, the fleshing out of what happens if they don't obey God's covenant, and if they do. And so there's difference between unconditional and conditional covenant. What we see with the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham's covenant with God was unconditional God made a promise to Abraham and in the midst of making this promise to Abraham he he doesn't base anything that Abraham would do upon the fruition or the coming to pass of the covenant and so in verses 17 and 18 Paul keeps making his argument and he says we we see the law and the promise are mutually exclusive. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. And so the, the, the law and the, the covenant, the law and the promise to Abraham are actually mutually exclusive in that sense. The law can't annul the promise because the promise that God made to Abraham wasn't based on Abraham's performance. It was based on the promise of God's word. And so this means that God's covenant with Abraham has always been looking forward to the time of fulfillment, to the time and the person and the work of Christ. And so for a Christian worldview, we, we, we are from a Christian worldview, rather, we'd say it's not that the law is bad, but we need to understand that the law was never intended to bring salvation. The reason is because salvation is a grace covenant not a works-based covenant. Paul is saying, you don't have to earn your salvation by keeping the law. You don't have to earn your salvation through your performance. You don't have to earn your salvation, Galatian church, by keeping the rules or, or by doing all of these different things, jumping through hoops. The way that you come to salvation is by faith in Jesus and him alone. And so what we'll note as we walk through Galatians is that Christians are made right with God through Christ's redemptive work. Not by the things we do. Not by trying to earn God's favor. And it's the Holy Spirit's role in the new life of Christ's followers to guard us. We'll see later that verses 21 through 25, we see the role of the law was to be a guardian. Well, now the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is to be a guardian in that sense. The Spirit of God guards the believer teaches us, directs us, instructs us, leads us in our daily lives. So one question we might think about is, how do the details of God's covenant-making ceremony with Abraham encourage us? How do they encourage us? 
that God took the initiative, that God has seen his promise through, his promise to Abraham through in his fulfillment with bringing Christ coming for our redemption. Another question we might consider is, when are you most tempted to look to your own efforts to make yourself acceptable to God? Right? Because we can't make ourselves acceptable to God. That's the faith work that Jesus Christ has done. Timothy George, in his commentary, gives a real helpful analogy. It was helpful for me anyway. As we try to think about this connection between Abraham, the promise made to Abraham, the fulfillment of that promise through Jesus Christ, and Moses and the law, which came 430 years after Abraham. And so that that analogy that's helpful for me is, is if we think about God's covenant with Abraham as the main road running through the Old Testament up to the New Testament, so from Abraham to Christ, we might call that the main road or the salvation highway, so to speak. And what Paul's saying is the law isn't actually a stop along that main road highway route what Paul's saying is the law is actually a side road that comes into the main road I I think that'll become a little bit clearer as we move forward so as we look at the next point journeying from captivity to freedom in verses 19 through 25 it's kind of a play on words here because Israel was in bondage, the Galatian church is, is trying to, the, the Judaizers are trying to bring them back into bondage. And so this idea of journeying from captivity to freedom uh, speaks of what's happening there and not falling back into captivity. Uh, but I think it also speaks for us in our own spiritual pilgrimage and journey, moving from captivity to freedom, bondage to freedom. And so Paul asks in verse 19, so he gives this argument. He says, okay, so we're all about the promise and faith that comes through Christ. And what then for the law? If the law didn't have a purpose then, he's saying, why why, why did God even give the law to, to his people? And so in verse 19, he answers that. Why then the law? What's the purpose of the law? And he goes on to say the law that the law actually reveals the reality of our condition. The law reveals the reality of our condition. So notice what it says in verse 19. It was added because of our transgressions, right? So the fact that it was added, it, it, means, it means to accomplish some other, it's got some other purpose than what was initially put in place as the covenant that God had with Abraham through which he would bless all the nations, right? So the, the covenant and the promise of salvation is coming through Abraham. And Paul's saying, now, now this law, the Ten Commandments, it was added because something needed to be added. It was added for another purpose. In Romans 5.20, Paul says the law was added so that, these trans, so that the trans, trespasses might increase. What's interesting to note is this word added In Romans 5.20, it literally means to come in by a side road. So if we think of the main road as God's covenant promise to Abraham, as he said earlier, it runs through the Old Testament leading to Christ. The, The law then could be the thought of a side road that merges into the main road. The law meets God's people in the midst of their journey out of bondage in Egypt, right? They're journeying to the promised land. And on the way there at Mount Sinai, God gives his people the law. 
And so the law is teaching God's people how they ought to live. The law meets God's people in the midst of their journey of the land of promise, but the law doesn't provide salvation, right? The law doesn't give them salvation. It says it was added because of transgressions. So this phrase, because of transgressions, kind of got a a situation. Is it preventative or is this provocative? Because it could sound like both. It was added because of uh, transgressions, and if it's preventative, then that means the law is teaching God's people the boundaries in which they are to live so they don't step out of those boundaries and there incur judgment and suffer the wrath and the condemnation of God. Makes sense. But it could also be provocative. Because of trans- it was added because of transgressions. God's people were sinning, and therefore there needed to be a law given, and that law given would show them their sinfulness. In that sense, the law is provocative because it, it increases the transgressions. So the law shows hum- humanity our inability to live under its strict demands for perfect righteousness. So it's not preventative. It's provocative. Because what the law actually reveals is that you and I, in all that we do, in all of our activity, we cannot be good enough to keep the law perfectly. It goes all the way back to Genesis, uh, to, Ge- to Galatians chapter 3, verse, um, verse 10. Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So the idea is, if, you, if you're going to live your life set out by the law and try to put all of these rules in place in order to make you be able to come before God and be acceptable to God, the result of that type of effort is that you will suffer miserably because you will not make it. You cannot do it. And that's what Paul is saying. So the law actually shows us our inability to live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. The law doesn't bestow salvation. Instead, it convinces us of our need for salvation. You see, the law is actually showing us that we need a redeemer. The law is showing us we need a Messiah. We need a Savior. We need a champion who can do this life for us. Another way to view the the function of the law is to think think of a picture and a mirror. Now, you're probably familiar with back in the, well, some of you are, uh, maybe back in the 80s or the 90s when they had these glamour shots. You remember that? The pictures are all done up. So just think about this, all right? You get, you get glamour shots, all right? And your picture, I mean, you look really good in that picture. And you're so proud of it, you get it blown up. And you put it on your mirror just by your sink, okay? So every morning when you wake up and you begin brushing your teeth, you're looking at that picture as you're brushing your teeth and saying, man, I look good, right? And then you, you wash your hands, maybe you wet your face, uh, and then you, you leave and you go about your day. Now, you may think one thing about your appearance, but in reality, if you really look in a mirror, you understand that, that your appearance is pretty terrible, right? I mean, your hair's a mess, uh, you've got stuff all over your face, sleep in your eyes, whatever, right? But, but when you look in the mirror you can recognize and see what you actually look like. You can see your reality. You know, and and in this sense, this is what the law shows us. 
It's like the mirror where we've took in, taken that, that glamour shot away. And, you know, and we're looking face-to-face at who we are, the reality, all our warts and our bumps and our bruises, all our nastiness. And here's the point that Paul's driving home. God never, ever, ever desired for man to live independently of him. God has always desired for us to live dependently on him. In reality, we seek to live independently of God. We're foolish, and we think that we can earn God's favor by keeping a few rules and regulations. Even as we we saw the Genesis narrative, living independently of God only brings bondage and condemnation. And what Paul is really writing to the Galatians is that living independently of God is living void of the Holy Spirit. But living dependently on God is living life in concert with the Holy Spirit. He introduces us to the understanding of the promised Holy Spirit in verse 14 of chapter 3. And as we go through the rest of Galatians, we'll see how Paul builds on the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. But not only was the law added because of transgressions, the law was added until the seed had come. That is, till the person and the work of Christ had come. Not that the law was done away with, but that the law had reached its ultimate destination. The law had brought us to fulfillment in Christ. We, don't, we, we see that we can't do this on our own, therefore we need a Savior. We look for a Messiah, we look for the Savior. Here he is, he has come, the person and work of Jesus. And so the law then teaches us and instructs us and pushes us there to Christ. And Christ becomes a fulfillment because he lives the law, the unattainable perfect standard that we see. He, he lives it out perfectly. He achieves righteousness for his people. There's a third reason, and we won't dwell on this, but it's given in verse, 18, uh, verse 19 and 20. And it was put in place, the law, through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So this is kind of a troublesome passage, and there are a lot of explanations for it, but I thought it would be helpful just to give us kind of a simple understanding of what maybe Paul is speaking about here. So the law is not on the same par with the covenant promise, not only because it wasn't chronologically limited, time limited, but also because it was handed down by angels with an acting man as a go-between, right, given to given to Moses. And so he says the law was conveyed through angels and there was an intermediary being Moses. And so he he cites the activity of angels in connection with giving of the law, Deuteronomy 33.2 and Psalm 68 and Acts chapter 7, verse 53. You can go back and look at those verses and see how it talks about an angel being there present, angels being there when God gives the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. The point is, When God gave the law, he spoke through angels and through Moses. But when God spoke the gospel to Abraham, he did it directly. And that's the simple meaning of verses 19 and 20. But we see the journey from captivity to freedom involves seeing who we are in light of who God is. Seeing our true reflection of self in the mirror of God's word. And we need to see the journey begins 
with self-discovery. In verses 19 through 22, specifically 21 and 22, we see this. You know, the road of self-discovery is, is the most difficult road for a human being to travel down. It's not just an emotional road, it's a spiritual road. It, it, it's what Jesus is speaking about in, in his words, uh, entering by the narrow gate and walking the straight and narrow path of discipleship. It involves a deep trust in the sovereignty of God and and an incredible dependence not on self but on on God's providential care. So in verses 21 and 22, the law is, he asks, is the law then opposed to the promises of God? And the answer to this question that he gives is a, a resounding no. In fact, he says, God forbid. The thought is abhorrent. The law is not contrary to the purpose of God. Paul, in fact, he insists that there's no defect in the law. Instead, he says the defect actually lies within us, within humanity. In verse 22, he says the law imprisoned everything under sin, meaning it wasn't just people, it was all of the world. Think back to our Genesis study in Genesis chapter 3 when when the curse was pronounced for Adam and Eve for their sinful rebellion against God. He bans Adam and Eve from the garden, right? And then what changes in the midst of, of, of his banning them from the garden? It changes is their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, and their relationship to creation. So no longer were Adam and Eve blameless in their work, in their service with the Lord, but now they work against God. Now they work against one another. And creation is now seen as working against Adam and Eve, right? The, the pain is increased in childbearing. The hardship of forming is there. There, He works by the sweat and the toil of his brow. Hardship of of pasturing. No longer the lions at at a distance. Now they are predatory on the flocks. So there's this change that happens. The law has imprisoned everything under sin. And in this sense, sin has affected everything. The effects of sin upon God's creation are universal. So sin means to transgress the will of holy God. And when we sin, we sin against God. It includes every one of us. Every one of us sin against God. Every one of us, every day, we transgress God's holiness. All the more reason why we need a champion. So what's the difference between Christians and those who aren't Christians? It's a good question. The difference is Christians have professed faith in the covenant promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He has perfectly obeyed the law, and as the second Adam, he's righted the wrong that the first Adam brought into the world. He's become the champion that we need because we couldn't do it ourselves. He established a righteousness for humanity that we couldn't gain on our own. So, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? If a tree falls in the woods and no one's there, does it make a sound? You can answer. How do you know? Laws of physics? So if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there, but there's a recorder there, does it make a sound? Yeah, we can hear it then, right? No one hears it if no one's there, but because we're there or have something there, we can hear it. So Paul's argument of the law is something like this. Was man sinful before the law came? Yeah. 
So what does the law do? Well, the law, it, it shines a light. It, it magnifies. It's the recorder in the personless forest listening to the tree fall. It, 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 it makes us aware and brings to light the sinful nature of humanity. So for the Christian or the non-Christian who says, how do I treat my wife? How do I treat my employees as a boss? Do I cheat on my taxes or not? What's the moral code, right, defining what we do? And what Paul's saying is the Christian worldview has the answer for that. And the Christian worldview is recognizing that we are inherently sinful. And we cannot, we cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. No one here. The only person that has ever been good enough to earn God's favor, to be righteous before God, was Jesus Christ living a perfectly sinless life. And he did that in order to make this exchange so that he took our sin upon him and he gave us his righteousness. And so this journey of self-discovery, it leads us to a place of, as we journey from captivity to freedom, we learn that liberation from captivity comes by faith in Christ. Liberation from captivity comes by faith in Christ. In verses 23 through 25, we see that fleshed out. Once we understand salvation by promise, we're free from seeking salvation by performance. So what the law tried to do by restraining power from without, the gospel does by inspiring power from within. What the law tried to do by restraining power from without the gospel does by inspiring power from within. And so in verse 23, Paul likens our captivity by the law to imprisonment and to a guardian in verse 24, a pedagogue. Several words have been used to describe the law here as a taskmaster, as a schoolmaster, as a tutor. In one sense, you could take them all together and it gives us this full understanding of of a slave who had charge of a child, raising a child and teaching that child manners and how to behave properly and how to eat. And, and this slave was known, this slave was known for, for harshness with children. So they would beat the child in order to make them conform in their, uh, in their, in their behavior. So Paul compares the law in that sense to what it does in our lives. And this is how the law functioned until Christ came. But when Christ came, we were justified by faith. We were liberated from oppression, the oppression of our own menial efforts filled with shame and guilt because we continually sin and continually mess up and we continually fall short. And though we've tried and tried to justify ourselves before God, we found in the end that we couldn't. But that's what Christ did. That's what he did for us. He became our champion because in verse 25 it says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, we have freedom in Christ. But now that faith has come, we are in Christ. We have become new creations. You see, unless we know how big our debt is, 
we can't know how great Christ's payment was. And Christ's payment was significant. It was bigger than we can probably fathom that he would give his life laid down for us. So I want to give you three questions as we close. Are you able to rest and rejoice in the promise of salvation by faith? Are you able to rest and rejoice in the promise of God's salvation by faith in Jesus Christ? Does that describe your life? Secondly, have you confessed before God that you acknowledge and realize the sinfulness of your life, the hopelessness of your condition without him? Have you confessed that to the Lord? Have you spoken that verbally in prayer before God? Then thirdly, as a new creation in Christ, are you daily depending on Jesus or do you find that you're more daily depending on self? As we continue to walk through Galatians, we'll see the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. But know this, Christian, God has given you of his spirit. He has not left us or forsaken us. But he has given us of his spirit so that we can walk with him, that we can know him, know him fully, experience his nearness and his presence. I want to encourage you this morning to respond as the Lord is leading you. If there's a particular thing that God has impressed upon your heart, to pray a prayer of confession to him, to pray a prayer of commitment before him, maybe even to surrender your life to this Jesus, the one who has given his life to make us righteous with God. If that describes you this morning, I want to let you know that at the end of service, we will have one of our elders over here on this side of the worship center by the foot of the cross to speak with you about what it means to surrender your life to Jesus Christ or to answer any questions you might have. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we think upon your word and reflect upon your goodness to us, thank you that Jesus Christ has given his life that we might have eternal life. Thank you that he redeemed us from our sin-sick lives. Thank you, Father, that even before we were born or thought of, there was this promise at work from Old Testament time through Abraham, the patriarch, that in the fullness of time, Christ would come to bring us salvation. Thank you, Father, for just a glimpse and seeing your marvelous hand, your marvelous plan at work. I pray, Father, this morning that as we leave this place, you would, you would strengthen us to rejoice in your goodness, to live by faith, not by our performance, but to trust in the work that you want to do in us by the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.